Have you ever felt that God failed you? Have you ever felt that God failed you? Uh, have you ever felt that God just didn't show up? He didn't live up to his promises. He didn't, he didn't make good on what he said he would do. Well, that's exactly the question, actually, that Paul's addressing in this text. Uh, what, what do I mean by that? Well, we, if you were here last week, you heard a little bit about this. But basically, you know, in the Old Testament, the people of God, the Jewish people, the Israelites, God made all these amazing promises to them, right? He promised them to be their God and to be his people and they'd be together and have covenant and worship and all these kind of things. And now the Messiah had come, their Messiah, and people were not believing in the Messiah. And the question is, has God's promises failed? Did God not come through? And that's why Paul starts verse 6 with the introduction to say, but it is not as though God's word has failed. And he's going to start with that introductory statement and lead us, that's going to take us all the way to the end of chapter 11 of explaining why God's word hasn't failed. And so today we're asking, so okay, so why hasn't it failed? Why hasn't God failed? And the answer Paul gives uh, is very interesting because it's, the answer he gives is one of the most controversial Christian teachings uh, in the history of Christianity, and that's election. He says the reason is, is because God's sovereign election. What, what is election? If you, if you don't know, maybe you're not familiar with that term. Basically, uh, I put a big, long, like, theological definition up there. You can write that down if you like taking notes or whatever. But basically, election simply means if you're a Christian, you're a Christian first and foremost, not because you first chose God, but because he first chose you. What election basically says is that God is God, that God is sovereign. He started with plan A, that he continues to plan, uh, through with plan A, and he's going to finish all of his promises of salvation with plan A. There is no plan B. If there was a plan B, he would not be God. Election is the plan A, and so Paul's going to lay it out for it. And so I realize it's, such a, it's a controversial doctrine. Some of us uh, have heard of it, some of us haven't, some of us know it all, all about it, whatever. Uh, but we're going to dive in today and look at it. And this is one of the great things about preaching through a book of the Bible because it makes you take time to address a topic like this that we might just like to skip over otherwise because it might cause controversy. But as you're thinking about this, uh, there's uh, one pastor I heard him give an analogy like this, uh, the doctrine of election, the teaching of election, that it's like a, um, you know, the piece of hard candy. It's really hard on the outside, but after you break it apart, there's this soft, gooey center. And, uh, that's kind of how this teaching is. It's hard on the outside. It's a hard exterior, but when you break it open, there's something really cool and sweet uh, on the inside. And uh, so as we read Romans 9, listen for the breaking of the exterior, hopefully, and the coming to the interior of the teaching. Romans 9, 6 to 16, hear the word of the Lord. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For, all, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring, but, Old Testament quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I'll return and Sarah, Abraham's wife, will have a son. Not only so, but when Rebekah conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, though they had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated." What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? 
By no means. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for giving us hard, challenging text. I pray as we look at it, I pray that you would break through the exterior hardness of our heart, of our mind, of our ears, of our eyes, and show us the sweetness, the depth, the breadth of your love and your mercy. pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I became a Christian when I was about nine years old, and I grew up in a church, a small Baptist church in the rural south, that did not believe in the doctrine of election. In fact, they avoided Romans 9 like it was uh, the bubonic plague. And I didn't even actually hear of or read Romans 9 until I was um, almost graduated from high school. And uh, when I was confronted with somebody said, this is, you know, election, here it is right here, God chooses, God's sovereign. And I just said, this is the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. I mean, my teeth broke on that hard candy. I was like, this, is, this sounds cultish, this sounds awful. Uh, and and I, I, as I took it in, I thought, I just would not worship God if he did this. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to spend, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to study, I'm going to prove this wrong. So I spent the next 18 months of my life, like whatever free time I had, like the next 18 months, uh, I know I'm a nerd, but I had to, you know, I had to go there, um, to say, I'm going to prove this wrong. As I did that, you know, week in and week out, and study this passage, that passage, and all over the Bible, and praying and working, um, God began to break my own heart, and it suddenly became clear that I was, I was in the, under the impression that like, I was like the God of my world, that I was the master of my fate, the captain of my own destiny, that I was the one pulling all the strings and God was responding to me. And I began to see more and more as I, I broke my teeth on the hard candy of this teaching. Um, eventually it started to open up. And I started to see that, you know what? I'm not God. And he actually is. And that is a good thing. It's a good thing. So that's what Paul is really showing us about the doctrine of election. And, of course, the first objection that comes is, uh, but, you know, what about free will, right? Don't I have free will? What about my choices? And absolutely, you have a will. Absolutely, you make choices. Absolutely, you're, you're accountable for them. You're responsible for them. The Bible teaches that all over. Absolutely, you make choices, and, and, uh, and, and they matter. But it's a little bit more complicated than that, so let me give you a little analogy. For instance, if uh, 100 days in a row, if I gave you two different meals to choose from. And one was like delicious uh, uh, prime steak, and the other was old rotten fish, and it had been sitting out in the sun for like baking for 30 days, and it had like flies and maggots all over it. And I said, now choose. Which one do you want? Which one would you choose? Choose the steak, right? Every single time you're going to choose the steak. You're never going to pick up that rotten fish and put it in your mouth. And I say, but why not? You choose it. And you say, I, I can't eat that. I, can, I couldn't eat that. That's disgusting. What do you mean you can't? You have free will. Put it in your mouth. Chew it up. Eat it up. You, there it is, right? Why, why not? I can't. I couldn't eat that. And so it's a little more complex. You just see the things, our, our choices are kind of determined by the things that we love or don't love in our heart. And what the Bible says is that we all come to God initially with a heart that looks at God not like the steak, but like the rotten fish. And what he's saying is actually we, 
we did choose. We made our choice. And by virtue of my sin and your sin, you chose death and Satan and hell and judgment over God. And we can't think for a moment that this is just some like indiscretion, some peccadillo, some small little decision that we made because the Bible says it's, it, it's rank treason. That, it's, that it's, uh, it, it's terrorism against his kingdom. It's collusion with his enemies. That's what the Bible says it is. So the question is, not what will we choose. We, we, cho- we, cho- we, cho- we chose. We made our choice. The question about election is really, what is God going to choose? What will God elect to do? Because election just means choose, right? You elect a politician, you get in the booth, and you elect. You choose one politician over the other. And the question is, what is God going to elect to do? Because what do kings do with treason, treasonous? What do kings do with rebels? What do they do with people that commit terrorism in their kingdom? What do we do with bin Laden? Sent SEAL Team 6 in there to bring down the hammer of justice. And what God is saying, as hard as it is to hear it sometimes, is that if we're looking at what our choices got us or what we deserved, it was God's version of SEAL Team 6. That's what kings do with treasonous. That's what kings do with rebellions. So the question is, what would God choose to do? And what election teaches us is he chose not SEAL Team 6, that God chose to love. That's what we're hearing in this passage. God chose, actually, he chose to love but not just kind of an ordinary love, not the kind of love that we all know, but we're going to see two things that he, he loves. He has an extraordinary love. He chose an extraordinary love, and he chose an unconditional, uh, unconditional love. And you see that uh, here as we look deeper, because when God chose, he didn't choose like we did. He didn't choose the way that we would, because he practices a different way. He practices a different kind of love. And, the, and, and you see this, I think, all the way through this text, but if you think about it, I mean, think back to your elementary school days. Think back to your kickball days, you know, like your elementary on the kickball team, right? Um, you're the captain of the team. You get to be the captain. Who are you going to pick? Who are you choosing? Who are you choosing for your team? You're choosing the best, right? You're choosing the most athletic. You choose the, the cool kid who might, you know, if you choose him, he might do you a favor later. He might let you sit up with a lunch or whatever. But you're going to choose the people that are the best, the people that you want to be around, the people that are going to help you win. And God says, I don't, I don't choose that way. I do the opposite. And so the first thing we see is that his choice, his election is not by race or nationality. Look at verses uh, 6 to 9. He says, Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham just because they're his offspring. The promise said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. So what Paul does is, look, let's go back to the Old Testament here. If you, if you know the Old Testament at all, you know this story. Go back to Genesis 12. He calls Abraham. He chooses Abraham. Abraham's not like out there living some good life, seeking God, wanting to, wanting to be a good, you know, uh, spiritual guy. He's not. He's living in this pagan city, Ur of the Chaldees, and God chooses him and plucks him up and calls him out and come and leave everything you know and go to what I'm going to show you. That's how he chooses Abraham. And Paul says, you know, there's, there's so many Israelites of his day going, well, Abraham is my father, therefore I must be in with God. And Paul says, no, because not all Israel is Israel. Why does he say that? Why does he say uh, this thing about the promise coming through Isaac? Well, because Abraham had more than one son, right? There were sons of Abraham to whom the promise didn't come, like Ishmael. And so God says, just because you belong to the right race or nationality doesn't 
mean squat with God. And this is good news in this room because 95% of us sitting out here are not Jewish ethnically. Because what election is actually saying is that God didn't, he was, going to, he was working through one nation, but he wasn't only going to choose one nation. What election says is that God has thrown the doors of salvation open to every tribe, tongue, language, and nation on earth. That's the good news that election is teaching us this morning. Now, I told you earlier, I grew, up in, uh, I grew up in the rural south. And when you grow up in the rural south, um, you grow up in, usually, at least I did, I grew up in a small town under, under the cloud of racism. It's, it's, uh, it's pervasive. And I would be ashamed to say some of the things I heard growing up, some of the things I said in middle school and high school, And you know, it finally began to undo that sin in my heart. It was the doctrine of election. I saw, I'm not, I didn't choose you because, you're, because of your race, but in spite of it. And election is saying, God has thrown the doors open to all the nations for salvation. Nobody's better than anybody else. And do you harbor any racism, any residual? I mean, maybe not say it out loud, but do you have any of that left in your heart that flies in the face of election can't stand before election because god doesn't choose that way he doesn't work that way so it doesn't come by by race or nationality and and it also doesn't come paul tells us by merit on our kickball field you know we're going to choose for merit we're going to choose the best but it's not really how god works and so he's going to continue the genesis story look at uh, verses 10 and 11 he says, not only this, but when Rebecca, Rebecca was Abraham's daughter-in-law, married Isaac, when she conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, they had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So he goes back to the Genesis story again. You can go back and read this sometime uh, if, if you want. But so Isaac and Rebecca meet. They get married. They do what married couples do. She gets pregnant with twins, and there's two boys living in her in her womb, Jacob and Esau. Right? That's what uh, that, that's what the story in Genesis tells. And they're wrestling from the very beginning. But how does God choose one? Because it says He chose Jacob, but He didn't choose Esau. How does that happen? Now He didn't. He didn't look down and go like, I'm going to look down through the tunnel of time and say, I'm going to see what Jacob would do with his life. And, and you look at Jacob and he's like, yep, you know what? Jacob, good guy. He, way to go, Jacob. He, he did all the right things. He made the right decisions. He repented enough. He did this enough. I think I'm going to choose Jacob to be on my team. He's on my kickball team. God says, not at all how election works. Because he says, before they were born or did anything good or bad, I chose Jacob over Esau. And so prior to their even being born, that's election took place. But when does it actually happen? And Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 tell us a little bit, give us a little more detail about this uh, because uh, it says that God chose, that word is elected in Greek, he elected us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. How do you break through the hard candy of election? You hear, you hear this. You see how deep the roots of God's love go. Do you see how far back 
the roots of God's purposes go. That, that, that before there was, he said before the foundation of the world, before there was a star in the sky, when darkness reigned over all the universe, what was God thinking about? And election says he was thinking about you. That's how far back and how far deep the love of God goes. And therefore, what are you afraid of this morning? Because that love is going to carry forward all the way into, into the future. It can never be thwarted. It can never be forced into plan B. And he's saying, before the stars were in the heavens, God chose love. He chose love. But he didn't just do it prior to their birth and prior to them, but completely independent of them. Completely independent. And, you know, just sort of said anything of, they, 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 of anything they did, of anything good or bad that they have done, not, not of works, it's based on him who calls, based on God. Now, if you remember the story, what, what was the story? You know, could it have been by merit? I mean, remember the story, right? Uh, they're born, they're twins, uh, Esau and Jacob. Esau, who, who comes out first? Who, who comes out first? You can respond. Esau. Esau comes out first, and Jacob is clenching his heel and holding on to it. And, and they name him Jacob because the name Jacob means deceiver. The name Jacob means liar, means cheater, means supplanter, right? And what did Jacob do? To, he lived up to his name in his life, if you know the story, right? What did he do? Right? Esau was born. He was kind of this man's man. He was like, the Bible says he like, had red hair. He was really hairy all the, way in, all the way around. And he liked to be out in the fields and hunting and with dad. And Jacob, he was like this mama's boy. You could always find him clinging to Rebecca's uh, 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 apron in the kitchen and uh, looking for an opportunity to deceive. And he did. He waited till his dad got old and frail and weak and blind. And then he and his mom concocted this plan. And they went in there and they deceived him. They stole their older brother. They stole, they stole Esau's uh, right. And then what did Jacob did? Then he stood up like a man, right? No, he fled. He ran away like a coward in fear. And he ran away to a whole other country where he finally ran into his uncle Laban and he got married. Not to one woman, he got married to two women. And he treated one of those women like a queen until she came to him, demanded something of him. And then he basically lashed out at her with anger. And the other woman, he basically treated her like a piece of merchandise and completely emotionally isolated her for most of her life. And God said, that guy's on my team. I choose him. Couldn't have been based on merit or works. God chose him. And not so that, you know, you say, oh, you believe in the doctrine of election. I'll just sit back, be fat, happy, lazy, don't do anything. God chose him to save him, to rescue him. And God changed his name. God changed his identity from the name of Jacob to the name of Israel. He became a different person. And this is good news because this room is filled, filled with a bunch of Jacobs. We're honest with ourselves, we, we're filled with, with, with greediness and, and, and lust and, and selfishness and self-righteousness and all those things. And yet, what election says is, but there is hope for the greatest of sinners because God chose love. Not based on you, not, not, not dependent on you, not because of you would be good or bad or fail or not fail, but because he chose love. So it never happens by race or by merit and it doesn't happen either by, by status. 
And that, that's kind of the way that God is, is teaching us this. And before I kind of go there, I should probably give you just like a way of analogy, because a lot of people look at this doctrine of election, they say, it sounds like to me like an, a, you know, an abusive father, you know, making these choices, being sovereign, fulfilling all these things. It just sounds like an abusive father. Let me try to have, give you an illustration. Um, a lot of you will know uh, that, that uh, we're pregnant. Uh, well, I guess not so much me as my wife. She's the one that's doing most of the work. But uh, she's pregnant. We're doing like six weeks, right? Now, how does that work when you get pregnant, when your wife gets pregnant? As soon as you see that pregnancy test, it says there's a baby. What do you do? You love you set your affections on that child immediately. Immediately you're in love with this child. You haven't even met him. You haven't even seen him. They're going to make your wife, you know, her belly grow. And they're going to make her not be able to sleep at night. And then they're going to be born. And they're going to cost you money. And they're going to keep you up at night. And they're going to give you headaches. They're going to do all this stuff. And yet you're loving them. That's what you're doing. You're, lo- you're setting your love before you even have met the child. Have you... What would it be like if the father, if, if a father said, I'm glad we're pregnant. Let's, uh, you know, I don't know. Let's just see how it goes. Maybe he'll live up to the family name. Maybe he'll make the right decisions in life. Maybe, maybe he'll, he'll, he'll do the right things, and then I'll kind of give him my love. That's the definition of abuse and neglect. Election says... You have a father that named you, that loved you before the stars were put in the sky and will carry that through to eternity. And so it can't be by these things. It can't be by status. When we look at this, we see, again, God's love is not ordinary like ours. It's, it's extraordinary. So what does he say in 9, 9, 12, and 13? To show it's not based on worldly status. He says, she, being Rebecca, was told, this is in the Old Testament as well, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now, when you say, well, the older will serve the younger, you and I think, well, so what? It's not a big deal. But in that culture, that's a crazy prediction. Nobody would have believed that prediction. Why? Because they believed in, they had a tradition, they had a rule, it was called primogeniture. We even had it in our country for a very brief period, kind of in colonial days, but it basically said the oldest son is the son. The oldest son is the inheritor, right? The oldest son is going to be the patriarch of the family. He's going to be the one that everybody else looks up to and serves. And, and, and God says, uh, no, flip. I don't work by the world's way of power. I don't work by the world's way of status. I don't work by the, by the world's method. He said, it's flipped. The older is actually going to serve the younger. And then he has this verse 13, which is, in many ways, a dreaded verse that I wish we could just like skip to verse 14. But I think you would not like it if I just skipped over it randomly because it's so difficult. So what does it say? As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What do we do with that? I mean, who does God hate? Does God hate people? Again, this plays into the status issue. Um, So let me try to explain it. Because all the other quotes are from Genesis. This quote is from Malachi, last book of the Bible. This quote about loving Jacob, hating Esau, comes 1,500 years after Jacob and Esau actually lived. But after they lived, what they, I mean, what they did was, remember, they founded two nations. Jacob became the, uh, uh, the 
founder of Israel, and Esau became the founder of this other nation called Edom, and Edom thought they were pretty hot stuff. And whenever anything bad happened to Israel, they participated. So anywhere, you know, Assyria or Babylon or whatever, these, these foreign armies come in to destroy Israel. What did Edom do? They helped. They, they, they violated. They, they, they committed violence. They, they committed injustice all through Israel. That's what the country of Edom did. That's what it's talking about in Malachi 1. And so what God is saying there is not, I hate that guy Esau. He's saying, I hate the injustice that his nation Edom did against my people. Because they thought they had status. They thought, we're the, we're the chosen nation, not Israel. They thought, we're the best, not them. And God says, no, it was flipped from the beginning. It'll always be flipped because God doesn't work by the ways that we work. He doesn't work by the statuses that we like to cling to. And we all try to, do, we all try to build the status. We all try to build an identity. We, know, we can build it on anything. We can build it on, on uh, our parenting philosophy. We can build it on our, how our kids behave. We can build it on our sports teams. We can build it on, on, on our, our decisions we make and how moral we are and where we've achieved in our career. We can build those statuses on everything. And God says, I don't work that way. Everybody else recognizes fame and power and money. I don't. I don't see it. You could be big in the culture's eyes, but small in my eyes. Because I work the opposite. And he says it very explicitly in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. So I'll just read those verses because they'll be on the screen. And he's talking about election. He's applying it practically. And he says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise and worldly standards or powerful or of noble birth. But God chose. The word is elect. God elected what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak to shame the strong. He chose what is despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So nobody can boast in the presence of God. And often the thing you hear about, oh, these people believe in election. They just believe they're so special. They're chosen by God. And Paul laughs at that. Because he says, election is the most pride-destroying, destroying, humility-creating doctrine that ever, could have, that ever could have happened. Because it's saying it's totally outside anything you ever did, totally outside you or independent of you, your actions, or what you did. It is free, unconditional, unmerited, outpoured love because God said, I choose to love. And this creates amazing harmony and community when you really take it in deep. Why? Because the guy that lives next door to you that doesn't believe anything that you believe that you kind of look down on, according to election, he is not inferior to you. Any judgmentalism that would rise up in our hearts where we look at other people and say, that guy is never going to get his life together. I mean, look at that. Look at the decisions she's making. I mean, what a loser. I mean, she's never going to get that together. Any of those thoughts of judgmentalism and pride fly in the face of election. They can't be sustained if you believe in it. Because there's no superiority. That's why Paul says, so that nobody could boast. So nobody can have anything to brag about. This is this amazing doctrine It's amazing teaching that tells us about the nature and the depth of God's love for us. Who are you looking at this morning going, that person, who are you feeling superior to? Who are you feeling, that person will never get it together. That person has no hope. Because what election says, there is no person anywhere who has done anything who is outside the realm and the reach of God's 
grace. Who are you looking at and saying, not, not him, not her? Election says, don't you dare let judgmentalism and pride creep in. Can't be. That's God's extraordinary love. And he also has this unconditional love. And so, look, I know there's still objections out there. Still a lot of people, a lot of you are still questioning, like, but it still doesn't make sense. It doesn't make, make sense. It doesn't seem fair. And that's exactly the question Paul's going to start with here. And the reason I kind of wanted to tell some of my own story at the beginning of the sermon was just to say, look, if you're struggling with this, if this is a problem, if this is like, I just don't know, I'm breaking my teeth on this hard candy, I'm not getting anything out of it, then I know how you feel because I've been there. I was there for a long time. It took me a long time. I don't think I can lay out everything or answer every question or objection for you in a 30-minute sermon. But I'm saying keep biting down on the candy. Keep seeing what God's truth is really saying and keep looking at the sweetness on the inside because he, say, he, he, say, he, he says here, Paul anticipates the objection, doesn't this make God unfair, right? Look at 14 to 16. He says, what are we going to say then? Is there injustice on God's part? In other words, isn't he... Isn't he cruel or isn't he unfair? By no means. He says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. It depends then not on human will, not on human exertion, but on God who has mercy. So Paul goes back again, Old Testament, right? Doesn't it sound like, he says, God, God sounds unfair, right? Let's go back and look at what he said to Moses. And you might remember that story from the Old Testament too. It's another one. But he says, remember what Moses did? Moses said, God, I, I want to see all your glory. I want to see the essence of I want you to, to show it all to me. And God says, if I were to show you all my goodness, all my glory, it would just incinerate you immediately because I'm so good, so bright, so powerful, it would just blow you away. But I love you, and what I'll do is I'll tuck you in this cleft of a rock, and I'll pass by so that you won't be exposed to that, but you'll just see this, the tail end, the outer edge of who I am, my glory. And when he passes by, God announces himself, and what does he say? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and loving, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He says, you want to see the essence of who I am? It's not, just, it's not unconditional, as, as much unconditional as this is a character love. He says, look at the character of who I am because all this stuff is very difficult. It's very mysterious, right? When we start talking about election, we're like standing up on the edge, up on the precipice of looking back into eternity past, into the inner workings of God himself, and it's just, there's mysteries there. There's things there we'll never know, things there we'll never understand. And so Paul is saying, there might be things that seem unfair, but look at the character of God. It's his essence is mercy. Trust his character if you can't trust exactly what is being said here. Right? We do this with our kids all the time, right? I mean, what, when I go to the mall with my kids, I say, don't run away from me. Don't run through the mall. Why not, Daddy? Why not? Just, I can't explain to a five-year-old all the wrong things that could happen if you run away from me because you're not going to be able to look into that understanding. So I'm telling you to trust me because my heart for you is a heart of protection, a heart of mercy. And that's where, he's, that's where Paul's bringing us back to, uh, to the character and the mercy um, of God. And that's why he can say in verse 16, then, it's not for your will, not for your exertion. The word is running. So not based on will or exertion or running, but just because God chose love. Because God chose love. His character is mercy. And so if you ask yourself this morning, if you're a Christian, and, you ask, and I ask you, why are you a Christian? You might say, well, because I believe in Jesus. 
you'd be absolutely correct. But I said, but why did you believe in Jesus and other people didn't believe in Jesus? Well, you know, I, I repented of my sin and, 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 and turned that over and came to Christ. Yeah, but why did you do it and other people didn't do it? Well, I, you know, I, um, I, I saw the offense of my sin. I saw the holiness and the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ. And I wanted, I wanted that. Yes, absolutely right. But why did you want it and, and other people didn't want it? And eventually you push it back far enough. And if you don't believe in election, you have to say, because I... Because I something, because I was smarter, because I was more intuitive, because I was wiser, because I uh, was more insightful. You have to get back. If you don't believe in election, you have to come back to say, because I. But God says clearly they're not by will or exertion, but because what? Of him who calls, because God. The answer is always because God. That is what Paul is saying, and that is a good, sweet thing that he's breaking open for us. Why? Because he's saying grace came before you and independent of you and outside of you. And it wasn't based on anything that you did or your race or your marriage, anything like that. But God chose love. Before a star was in the sky, he chose love. There's great mystery here. The bottom line of the whole teaching of this passage on election is that God chooses, he elects to love his people. It's not always, what did I choose, but what did God choose? What we hear here is that God chose love. But we can't think that his choice to love was just a simple, easy flip of a coin. I'll flip the coin, yeah, okay, we're love, it's heads, we love them. I'm going to love, I'm going to love people. Because every choice to love involves a choice to sacrifice. I mean, I can't love my kids unless I'm going to sacrifice my time and money for them. I, you can't rescue your neighbor and love your neighbor from a burning building unless you're going to run in there yourself and sacrifice yourself for them. And so when God made the decision, when he elected to love, we make decisions, we choose the thing that's best for us. When God made the decision, when he chose to love, he chose the thing that would cost him the dearest. That this must be the greatest act of love anyone has ever seen, and therefore it will require the greatest sacrifice. And when he chose an eternity past, when darkness still filled the earth, when he chose to love, the Holy Trinity came together, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in what's theologically called the eternal covenant of redemption. And they said, we have chosen to love, and therefore we will pay. We'll pay the cost. We'll pay the cost of Jesus. We'll pay the cost of the Son. He chose to love. If you're like a non-Christian this morning, you're like, I'm just not getting this. I don't even know what you guys are talking about. But if your heart is warmed at all to the fact that God chose love, then you can have assurance of election today. You can have Jesus right now. That's what he's saying. You can, you can look back and go, from before the stars were in the sky, he was moving me to this moment to put my faith in Christ, to prove my election by believing in Christ. And if you're a Christian this morning... If you're a Christian, he's saying, there, there, I know there's objections, I know there's difficulties. Keep rolling the candy around. Keep breaking your teeth off on the hard edges until you're able to get to the gooey center. Until you're able to see the sweet, deep, perfect, eternal, unconditional, extraordinary mercy of God who says to you, 
I chose love. I chose love. Love. 